seems ages since we were here. Obviously it's not, but it's just amazing how quickly you miss church. We're going to go looking um, at the book of John, continuing the journey. But let me just stress one thing. We're not studying a book. Anybody can study any book. But what we're actually doing is we're looking into a person. You see, a book can't go ahead of you when you need someone to prepare the way. Excuse me if I start wandering off. He's just as bored and um, perhaps, perhaps, uh, okay, yes. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's vital look, that we look at the book, but we look to, to look at the person. And there's a world of difference between the two statements. The, the book, the text, the next 21 chapters will tell us something about Jesus. Notice this, it doesn't tell us everything about Jesus. It tells us something. In this particular gospel, the purpose, as we looked at the other week, is basically a a presentation of a series of events, a presentation of a person, and then when we get to chapter 20, the question is, do you believe? Do you believe what you've just read? And, you know, someone who uh, likes to challenge things as an individual, the first time I read it, I thought, what a great story. I even said to my wife, this would make a great film. Obviously, they had made the film by then, but I hadn't seen it, so I didn't know. But I, I thought, if these events were true, how amazing they would be. And then, of course, when you receive that revelation from God, you discover they are true. But even that doesn't take you over the line... What takes you over the line is, do you believe it? Do you then take what the information is given and actually personalise it? And say, okay, I see that, because you can believe it, but reject it. You've got to apprehend something. You've got to take it and make it personal to your life. Well, being inquisitive, I like to look for evidence. I don't want to believe something just for some guy 2,000 years ago happened to sit down and write a little bit of information. And one of the things I discovered very early on in my journey was that the Old Testament foretells so much of what happens in the New. And that intrigued me. Because I thought, how did that happen? Was that just a lucky guess? Or was there something divine behind it? Well, in this next 40 minutes, we meet a name for Jesus, which is called the Lamb of God. And we're going to pick up a couple of passages in the Old Testament where the Lamb of God is referred to. And just what the purpose of lambs were. There's no sentimental people here today, are there? You don't all like little lambs running around the field and things like that. On, can you like some? Is lamb on a plate? That's fine. You love them, yeah. Okay. Do you know? You, you don't have to read far into the Old Testament and discover that there's an awful lot of blood. There's an awful lot of animals dying. I mean, this isn't a pretty sight, you know. Sometimes thousands of animals are slain on a particular day. And and what does that? Does that make God someone who doesn't like animals? 
Or perhaps he's actually trying to show us something here. And of course he is in the Old Testament. The, the first time that we see a little glimpse of this, you put the first passage up for me please, Graham. And I'm, pay attention because I'm in a sort of questioning mood. And so you need to be alert. I might pick on you. This is a passage from Genesis and it says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God tested him and he said this. He said to him, Abraham, if you hear God's voice, this is not a bad response. Here I am, he replied. So he's communing with God as you do. You might be out walking the streets of Eckington wishing you'd got your camera and God might just say, Kirsty, what are you going to say? Here I am. Yeah, yeah. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region, region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Now, if you heard that, you'd go, that can't be God, can it? Why would God do something like that? And of course, he's not going to ask you. Let me just clarify that. If any of you parents and your children are annoying you, God isn't asking you to sacrifice your kid. All right? He might be asking you to go for a walk, but he's not going to ask you to do this. This is a one-off event, and it's there to show us something about what God is and about what faith is, by the way. Faith. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He sees the mountain. You know, when we did this as a Bible study, um, probably 18 months ago, two years ago, I remember saying, what would Dad be thinking? You know, can you imagine that weight in your chest? You've heard from God. And, and your son, you've got to do this to your son. And, and you know, would you shorten your steps so it's taking longer? What, what's going off inside? I'd love to know what he was thinking. But that's not today's sermon, so we'll move on. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And you see, look, we will worship and then we will come back. There's the secret, you see. He knows God has asked him to do something, but he isn't he is not fooled that Isaac's going to be left behind. He must be reasoning that actually, all right, even if I have to kill my son, actually God can raise him again. Even in the first book of the Bible, that is self evident. Even if my son dies, God will raise him again. We will go, we will come back. And then there's this magic word, these almost brilliant words that float off the paper. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? It must be that they've been sacrificing lambs previously, but this is the first time the word lamb is used in the Bible. And when you come across things like that, it is, it is written supernaturally, it is written for us to grasp something and see the significance behind it. First time a lamb, and watch what is said. 
Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb. God himself will provide the lamb for their burnt offering. Wow. That is, that is an example of Abraham's faith, but hear what I'm saying. When Moses wrote those words, and I believe Moses wrote Genesis, when he wrote those words, you have got a, a, a foretelling of the gospel. Right there. God himself will provide a lamb. You can go through all the rest of the Old Testament, and do you know we have one amongst us today who's done that already this year? That's not bad, is it? For someone who's on a journey, he's already gone through the entire Old Testament, haven't you, Neil? Isn't that brilliant? It is amazing. He's on his journey, right, and now he can sit in church and actually understand some of the stuff that's going off. He won't understand it all, by any means, but he's on his journey, and listen, from Genesis to Revelation, God presents the Lamb. We're going to meet the Lamb today. All right, let's move it on a little bit further. Yes, John. Absolutely. Yeah, you see? What God asked Abraham to do. And, and if we were studying that passage, we would know that actually the servant stayed behind. This was father and son business. It wasn't anything to do with anybody else. And that's another way of looking at what, what, you, what you're saying. I want to look at, the, look at something else that we're going to meet today. And I've done a, one of my fantastic PowerPoints. Yes, I'm still modest. Let's put it on, the PowerPoint. You've only got, oh, he's only got an ordinary PowerPoint to put on. Would you put the ordinary one on and let the jury decide? It gets better. There we go. Right. This is in Exodus, and he says this. Have the people make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings, exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, Neil's, Neil and I have done Exodus, haven't we, Neil? So I'm picking on you today. Yeah, we, we know what we're talking about here. The, the nation, of, nation of Israel has been taken out of Egypt. God has them in the wilderness. And now he's taken Egypt out of the nation. Now he's going to show them, actually, look, you've been in a country where they worshipped dozens of pagan gods. This is how you worship the true and living God. You can't just worship God how you think you can worship God. There are, there are ways that must be done. Do you know that? Do you know that when you come to church to worship God, the Bible teaches us that actually, before you even get here, you should be in a state actually acceptable to God. It doesn't take a, a great big performance... But it's not a bad thing to do in the morning, just to calm yourself down, just to focus on the, the privilege, you know, of coming to church. Of coming amongst like-minded people and actually, there's an awful lot of effort goes, goes on behind the scenes, but that's not, that's not it. The, the reality is God is here. You know, and we can miss that. God is here in the building today. How do I know that? Someone tell me why I know that. Because the light's on. 
Well, the light's on in some people, but you, you might feel God's presence. Come on. Because what? And what does that mean? You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And there are passages in the Bible that says that say where two or three are gathered, there I am. There I am. Well, I, my maths is good, and there's more than three people in the building. God's here. So yes, he's always with you in the sense that you are the temple, and your, his presence dwells. But when we come together corporately, we must never get familiar with that. There should be a sense of awesomeness, privilege. But they are beginning their journey. They, they are learning what it means to come before God. So why did I choose the passage straight out of Exodus when we're looking at John? Let's have a look. This is what they made. Can you all see that? It's a reasonable artistic impression. About 175 foot long. There's a, these are high curtains that go all the way around. That's the entrance. That's the altar. These are the priests. This is the uh, tabernacle itself, the holies, and then the most holy place. You should, if you've been coming here any length of time, be familiar with a picture similar to that. Right, let me explain what happens. You, me, as sinful people, were required to make an offering to God. Now, bear in mind, these words come from God. He's telling them how to approach him. You needed a man in those days, and the man would sacrifice your lamb on that altar. It's even stranger than that. What the priest would have you do, he would have you put your hands on the lamb, symbolically transferring your guilt onto this beautiful little innocent animal. Clean animal. Right? Do you know what the priest had to do before he, he sacrificed the animal? What did he do? He washed his hands. He, he would wash his hands, but, but what would he do with the lamb? This is what I was looking for, Mel. He would check it. What's he checking it for, Greg? Blemishes. In other words, do you, do you know what we like, us guys... If I had to get rid of a lamb and there was a really healthy one and then there's the dodgy lame one with, like, you know, blinding one eye and everything, which one's God's going to get? Do you, know, <laughs> do you know you're so much better than me? You know, do you know what I would do? I'd try and sneak in the lame one. So God knows what we're like and those that didn't confess it, you're as guilty as I. Right? God tells us only the best. And so what the priest would do, Graham is perfectly correct, he would examine the lamb. Was it without spot, without blemish? Was it without defect? It had to be a perfect lamb. Do you know the one thing he did not check? Why? You are 100% correct, Tanya, but why did he not check that? Yes, but, but why didn't he check the lamb? Uh, why didn't he check the person? Correct. They're already guilty. There's no point in checking someone you know to be guilty. The lamb needs to be without blemish. The lamb is where the transfer is taking place. The lamb is perfect. 
you're already guilty, mate. And so that was the procedure. And then the blood would flow, and that was stage one for a nation to learn to come to God's presence. What then happened in here? Well, the priest would take the blood into the other side of that, into that tent. And he would do his service there. Then one day a year, it would go through that curtain, having sacrificed already for his own sins. Then he would sacrifice on behalf of the nation. And then he would be backwards and forwards behind there. To enter the Holy of Holies was quite a dramatic thing. And only on one day a year was that ever allowed. What has that got to do with John? Well, we're going to look at it. In chapter 1 and verse 14, he says about Jesus, the word, tabernacled amongst his people. The same word as that tent, that whole setup. So let's move the PowerPoint on and I'll, and I'll move it through. This is some of the illustrations, the picture from the Old Testament that God was teaching the nation. The tabernacle was the centre of Israel's camp. If you look in the book of Numbers, now I know some of you don't like the book of Numbers, I love the book of Numbers. And it gives all the tribe details, it gives all the... Do you like the book of Numbers, Neil? You do? Okay. <laughs> there is. But do you know those numbers are not there by accident? If you, if you plot those numbers out, the, the 12 tribes and, and then there's so many people in each tribe and he tells them exactly where to put the tribe when they camp. If you look from an aerial point of view, do you know what picture you see from above? The cross. Even in numbers. Something like 1,500 years ahead of the cross, you will see a picture of the cross. And right in the centre is the tabernacle. Lucky guess? Just by accident? Or do you think God might be saying to someone, look at this, I'm here all along. Next one, Graham. Did you like that? And that just suddenly... Okay. The tabernacle was the place where the law, the Ten Commandments, was preserved. Right in the centre of the centre is God's standard. That's what the law is. Isn't it, Catherine? God's standard. Yes, good. Next one. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. Fascinating. If you were an Israelite, you would look at the, at the tabernacle and you would see by day what? Come on, what would you see? Cloud? And by night? Fire. You had no doubt whatsoever. You did not come out of your tent in the morning for the next 40 years and look and wonder whether God was there. You saw him, he was there. Right in the centre. It's funny, you know, because Kirsty just told me that God lives within her. There is all sorts going through my head, which I'm trying not to say. <laughs> Breathe out. Okay. Right, okay. God's presence, visible to all to see. Shouldn't that be the same with us? Shouldn't that be the same? You've told me he lives within you. You know, when you go to work, 
when you go on the bus, when you go wherever you go, you're taking his presence with us. And surely we should, people should be able to see it and say there's something different about that person. Do you know the world might not be able to say what it is? But he's always there and he should be visible. In, in our lives, how we behave, how we act with each other. Next one, Graham. I'm showing off now. The place where God met with man and spoke to them. It's called the tent of meeting. Moses, Aaron, sometimes the elders, sometimes Joshua, would go and meet face to face with God. Always at the tabernacle, always to do with the centre. Do you think they went just like haphazard? Do you think they just thought, I know, I'll go and have a chat with creator of the universe, Lord Almighty, the same person who actually devastated Egypt with all the plagues, the same person who actually just parted the Red Sea. I think they might have been a little bit focused. They had a fear of God. Do Do you know what? Fear of God is necessary in all of us. Everyone in this room should fear God. Not in a frightening sort of way, as in, he's frightening me, but a very healthy respect of who we're talking about here. Of wisdom, yeah. And wisdom is how you live your life properly. Sometimes I I, I think some people just don't fear him. I think sometimes that actually they don't understand who we're dealing with. Not, not that I understand who we're dealing with, I'm not saying that, but actually I have a little bit of an understanding of who we're dealing with. I have met him on occasion and been very frightened. And yes, there are other times when I love the lovey-dovey stuff. But hear what I'm saying, God is an awesome God. Next one. Go on. The tabernacle was the place where sacrifices were made. (laughs) The tabernacle was the place where sacrifices were made. Sacrifices weren't made anywhere else, by the way. They were made here. When you had messed up, when you had sinned in in that day, that's how you did it. Of course, when the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, then the lambs would be brought to the temple. Next one. Go on. The the tabernacle was the place where God's chosen people worshipped him. That's how they worshipped. They came into God's presence. They would look and they would worship. Right, we'll move it on quickly now. Let's, Let's just go through the next few slides. Have the people make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings, not how you like, but exactly like the pattern I will show you. And the next one. Here we go. This is going to be our passage in a minute. Chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh. Who are we talking about? Jesus. And made his dwelling amongst us We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word there, in the original language, is tabernacle. What John is saying is, look, 
Jesus left heaven and came and dwelt amongst his people. Let's just spin a modern take on the on the tabernacle. Go on. If the if the tabernacle was the centre of Israel's camp, who do you think should be the centre of our camp? Jesus. Do you know we can do all sorts of great things in a building like this? We can do a food bank, we can do a charity shop, we can do a furniture project. But if Jesus is not the centre of this place, we're just doing works. We are just doing good stuff. But it must be centred around him. It it always encourages me that when people that we um, help, whether it's with the furniture or whether it's with the food bank or whether it's with the mental health group or whatever... When those people don't just receive, but actually then come. And it, I'm not on about the fact that they can't have anything if they don't come. That's, that would be totally wrong. But we make them aware that actually, yes, this is, what, this is what it is. This food, this furniture comes from God. What are you going to do with that? And some of them come. Some of them. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. The tabernacle was the place where the law, the stone tablets, was preserved. Well, who do we base our lives around? Who's the fulfilment of the law? He didn't come to abolish the law. It's him, Jesus. I'll let you into a clue. Most of the answer's Jesus, so you can relax. You'll get it right. They're not hard. Even Neil, who's gone through the Old Testament, by the way, has, has got it. He's going to kill me tomorrow. If we're back. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. Well, we've established that, Kirsty, you stole my lines earlier, that actually we are the dwelling place of God. And again, sorry, Amy, the place where God met with man and he spoke to them, the tent of meetings. Well, you know what? And don't make this mistake. You can speak to God anytime you like. You. You can be driving your car. You can be at work, you can be walking your dog, you can be anywhere you like. If you are a believer, if you are a believer, then God himself dwells within us. And he wants to talk to us. Surely if we learn anything from Exodus, say three and a half thousand years ago, the one thing that we learn is that God wants to dwell with his people. How sad... If we, if we know that and then we don't action it. If we know that God wants to dwell with us and commune with us and talk with us. And then we just go through life as though, oh well I'll see you on Sunday God. There's got to be more to it than that. Come on. Next one Graham. Go on. The tabernacle was the place where sacrifices were made. Well, Hebrews tells us. That for, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There's no need for this anymore. He was the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The problem with that system, yes it's a shadow of what he was bringing to, to, into reality, but no animal could ever remove the sin. That's why the things were repeated 
time after time after time. That's why you would sin, take a sheep, and then next week when you've messed up again, take another one, take another one, take another one. And it was all foreshadowing what the new was about. And of course, because he is the perfect Lamb of God, the sacrifice is acceptable once and for all. Aren't you glad that you don't have that system in your lives? And aren't the sheep glad? Last one. The tabernacle was the place where God's chosen people worshipped him. John 14, 6. He will say these words himself. Jesus will say this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we now know. They didn't know this, by the way. We now know. No need for that. There's no more sacrifice ever going to be made. No need for them. You do not need a man to get your access to God. No need for that room and straight into his presence. What an awesome awesome gift that God has given each one of us in this room it just should just stun us alright that's by way of introduction let's go to John's gospel please John chapter 1 thank you the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us that's his tabernacle we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth Grace and truth. What is grace? Undeserved favour. In other words, we didn't deserve it, but we've. But he's not just got a bit, he's got grace upon grace. Do you ever wonder what the world would be like if there was no truth? <laughs> Why, John? So we could put it that there's a, a variation on what truth actually might be. Well, I would, yeah. Sorry? <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> Bit political today. Well, but truth, you know, if you asked a load of people all over the world, they would, they would give you a different answer to what truth is. Some people would think it's alright to steal. Some people would think it was alright to do X, Y and Z. But because we actually have a person who stands for truth, do you know we've all then got the same measure to measure from? We don't measure relative against each other, we actually measure our lives against his. And if we measure our lives against Jesus' life, it's fairly easy to know when you're not in the truth. And that helps. Because having become aware of whether I'm in the truth or not, then I've got an option. I can do something about it. Or not. But at least if I've got a standard where he's the truth today and he will be the truth tomorrow because he never changes, at least we've got stability there. And that's, that's got to be... It's got to be a foundation of what we're talking about. 
it's got to be a foundation for our lives that we can measure against someone who's consistent. Verse 15, John testified concerning him and he cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. What a little tongue twister. John, we know about six months older than Jesus. How do we know that? Family member, but what's that? Lucky guess. Come on, how do we know Jesus is younger than John the Baptist? There you go. Yeah. John the Baptist's mum said that actually the baby leaps within her womb when Mary comes. And Mary has just, if you like, been uh, conceived with Jesus. So we know there's at least six months from, from the Gospels. But here he says this, look. This is the one I spoke about. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Speaking about his eternity, he wasn't something who, someone who actually was born and began life. Actually, he's always been. You know that, don't you? Jesus is God. He's, he's, he's eternal. It's not someone who was just created and entered the world. He took on flesh to enter, enter the world. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. In other words, here's undeserved favour and have some more and have some more and have some more and have some more. Grace upon grace upon grace. How amazing is that? That's our Jesus. Grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Alright, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Is that true? It's in the Bible. No one has ever seen God. Who said true? Go to the top of the class. You can't see God. God is spirit. So you can't see him. And in the Old Testament, when you see them talking face to face to God, who are they talking to? Ah, and you see, now we've got one. We've got the Bible scholar. What was it, John? The pre-incarnate Jesus. Yeah, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's what John the Baptist had just said. He existed from the beginning. Right? So actually, it must be the pre-incarnate Christ. Sometimes appears in the text as the angel of the Lord. But it's the angel of God, which is, which is him. It's just one of his titles. Don't get hung up on words. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, that'll do. Jesus is God. And is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known tongue twister again, it means exegete, expanded it. Jesus will turn round to people and say, if you have seen me, not me as in me, you get that don't you? If you've seen me, you've seen who? God, the Father. In other words, he's going to reveal him. He's going to, he's going to demonstrate to the people, because he took on flesh, that they can see God. That's where he's like. Well, what's Jesus like? Tell me. 
He's the same, but what, give me some of Jesus' facets. What, what's he like? Is he a nice person? Loving? Just a man? <laughs> it's a special man. We're, we're sort of winging it here, but go on. <laughs> He's what? Faithful? You've got an excuse. He's faithful. Did, did you hear what Mel said? Why is that important? Is Kenny faithful? Be careful where we go here. Is Kenny faithful? Is that important to you? Absolutely. It's no good Kenny being 90% faithful, is it? That would be wrong. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? Yeah. But he's not. He's 100% faithful. Jesus is 100% faithful. What else is about God? Good looking? Without sin, Tanya, come on. Yeah. Why is that important? Yeah. It's it's no good him being a sinner like me and you, because then he'd be dying for his own sins. Of course it is. Come on, you should know this stuff. Have confidence with what's going off inside you. What else is Jesus like? Loving. Why is that important? It does. And what does, what's that got to do with you? Fantastic, isn't it? Wasn't that worth coming to church for today, Sophia? Because Jesus is loving. And because he's always the same, he's always loving. Come on, one more. It could go on forever on this, this subject. He works miracles. Sometimes we need them. Yeah. He does that as well. Alright, move him on. Now this was John's testimony, John's witness, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. John's creating a bit of a stir. John is going to, I mean he's a strange character. Anyone know what he ate? What did John the Baptist eat? Locusts. Yeah, locusts and wild honey. Uh, big insects, about that big. Yeah. Tasty, yeah, yeah they're alright. Yeah, Kenny can get you a few if you want a locust for lunch. You know the ladies' breakfast, you're having them next week. That's why the men are not coming. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, get a couple of locusts down for her. Okay. Anyway, he went around eating some of that. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> Right, okay. Time to forgive. Right. He's creating a bit of a stare. So the religious rulers of the day, they want to know, John, you're doing all this stuff. By what authority? People, the crowds are gathering to you, John. By what authority are you actually ministering to the public? They're right to investigate, by the way. They're not the baddies here. They are right to investigate. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. This is John the Baptist's words. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Uh, Where's Elijah appear in the Bible? Old Testament. Neil should have known that because he's... (laughs) He said, he said, I am not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Where does the prophet appear? Deuteronomy 18. 
Uh, he was for, f- forecast to come. So Elijah, and he's not, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet. So who are you, John? Let's have a look. Finally then, they say this. Who are you? Come on, John. Who are you? Let's nail the question down. Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What's your testimony, John, about why all these people are coming? And John replied in the words of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. We're probably going to run out of time. But I was going to use this passage. But let me say this, look. John the Baptist, going ahead of Jesus, proclaiming to all the nation that the Messiah was coming. What do you think, if we were to apply that to us today, to you and I, what does that look like in our lives? We should be proclaiming that Jesus is here. We should be messengers. Point all, you know, that's all we need to do. That We can't do anything other than that. We can tell people, there he is. He's here. The reality. Lovely today when Kirsty gave a testimony. Wasn't it? And if you know Kirsty's journey, how God is taking her and leading her and everything, but you realise that with no, and I'm not being rude, but without you, Catherine, that didn't happen this morning. She had no, and I'm not even entertaining this, but so, listen. The world thinks lots of things, Chuck. I'm going to say, all right, we'll have a show of hands. Is Catherine rubbish? No. That was a shout, not a show of hands. Look, look. No, I was going to say, John, no hands went up. Then I was going to do part two of the question. Okay, this is part two of the question. Pay attention. Do we think Catherine's great? Yes. Judith's not sure. <laughs> That's because you don't know her yet. You'll get, to the, you'll get there. All right, now we can shout. One, two, three, Catherine is great. One, two, three, Catherine is great. It's not a revelation you need, it's the wax out your ears. Uh, Catherine the Great. <laughs> Go on then. Not a question about Catherine. Okay. No, we'll get to that. Yeah, we will get to that. Yeah, well, we'll get to it, yeah. Can I just say, look, and if I had time, I'd use the Isaiah passage. But, but it's about filling in valleys and levelling mountains. <coughs> Do you know sometimes, sometimes Christians can be obstructions to people finding Jesus? That's dreadful. Uh, you know, if, if we become the obstacle, if we become the obstacle from stopping people coming into a church building to worship God in a corporate setting, and that happens, we are failing him so much. Each one of us has a responsibility. 
a responsibility to, to, to say, look, I'm not him, right? We're all guilty before him, but also let's not dwell on the guilt so much. Let's realise we're all equal before him. We're all filled with the Spirit if we're his children. We are that tabernacle, that temple. And, and we have to be so careful with this stuff. Now the Pharisees who had been sent, 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 questioned him, why then do you baptise if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? The problem they had, look, was if you were a Gentile in that day and you came to the Jewish faith, called a proselyte, that's the, it was the proselytes who would get baptised. The Jews never got baptised. They were already God's people. They were already in a covenant relationship. They didn't need to be baptised into the family. They were the family. But if, as a Gentile become, wanting to become Jewish, there were certain things you had to go through. Baptism was one of them. The problem when what John was doing was he was baptising Jews. That was the consternation. Why is he doing this? What's changed? He said, I baptise with water, John replied, but among you, among you stands one. He's there, that you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. The lowest of the low job that anybody could have in that day was being the lowest slave. Sometimes a household would have a number of slaves, but there was one particular slave who was the bottom of the pile. And his job, not the other slave's job, his job was to prepare the guests when they came in. Now you picture the scene. It's a sandy road. No motor cars, no tarmac. Whatever is coming down that road... Camels, what do camels do? Yeah, what do donkeys do? They do what? The spit, yeah, well there's some of that as well and there's other stuff going on. Right? Yeah, you can, you can use your imagination, right? Okay, you get to somebody's house and it is Jewish custom of the day, wash the feet. Well, I'd wanna wash the, I don't want to wash the feet, but I want them clean when they come in our house. So your slave would be the one that would untie and get the bowl of water and wash all this grime and spit and everything else off the feet. Yeah, that as well. Right. Do you know this is John the Baptist? This is, this is the greatest prophet, greater than all the other Old Testament prophets, actually saying, compared to him, this is who I am. In actual fact, I'm not even that. Did you see the contrast that he's trying to tell these people? I'm nothing. But he also said, you are. <laughs> ah. At that time, there was no one greater prophet than actually John. All the other prophets would have longed to be John because the one thing John did was see him and announce him to the world. So why then are you greater than John? Absolutely true. Yeah. 
Whereas we have Jesus living within us. This should blow us away. Not something, oh yeah, okay, Jesus lives within me. No, 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 no. Move on, we'll quickly go through. This all happened at Bethany. He's located it now. It's not the Bethany near Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptising. We'll have a baptism service this year, by the way, so prepare yourselves. It'll be cold. Kirsty, good. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, here's the verse where we started, look. Look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If your version in your Bible says, Look, the Lamb of God that takes away most of the sin of the world, you've got a dodgy version. You've got a misprint. If it says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away everyone else's sin in the world, but not mine because mine's so big, you've got the wrong version. Jesus takes away all our sins. Everyone. Ask her at the end, all right? Let me know if she tells you the truth. You see? Sometimes we think we need to be a little bit sorted out to come to him. But just back in the tabernacle, do you remember what what Graham pointed out? It was the sacrifice that was examined. It wasn't the person bringing the sacrifice. There is no sin in this room that you could ever commit. There is no sin that you have committed there's no sin that you or I are struggling with that has not been already on him already on him we, we do it an injustice we, we do the whole event we do, we, we do him an injustice to think the one who sees from the beginning to the end didn't take care of our sins. How sad then that we wouldn't come to him. How sad that we wouldn't worship him, wouldn't say thank you to him, wouldn't revel in the fact that we have access to God. Why did he do that, by the way? Did it, was it just something that he thought might be a good idea one, one day? Or was this planned by God? Planned from before the creation of the world. Even before it all went wrong, this plan was put in place. He then sends the, does the Old Testament to show you what's coming. He then does the New Testament. And now we live in that time frame where we wait for his return. He will come back. This time he comes as a king. He will return. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Move on, Graham. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And this is your answer, John. Then John gave this testimony, this witness. How do I know? 
I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. The other Gospels tell us a similar story. He saw the physical manifestation of God's presence on God the Son. And if you really want to be fancy, you've got in Luke, when heaven declares, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Well, that's interesting. He did know him. Why did he know him? Because he's a cousin. Yes. But he didn't know him. He didn't know he was him. The confirmation is the descending of the Spirit. Understand this, and perhaps this is where we can leave it, leave it for now. Understand this, that actually, while ever Christ was on earth... 100% man, 100% God. But he didn't function as 100% God while he's on earth. In his own right, if you, if you would have. It tells us in Philippians that he laid aside. Yeah, he laid it aside, came to earth. Right? He's still God, don't get this wrong. He's, he's always God, but he's always, always man when he, when he was on earth. The difference is this. He operated under the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Why is that good news for you and I? Absolutely, you know. And with everything, with all our struggles, you, ha you and I have one thing he didn't have. We have sin. We have our battles. Right? You always will do, till you get rid of this tabernacle, this tent, you and I will struggle with sin. But we can draw from him. We don't have to sin. We will sin. You will mess up. If anyone thinks they'll never mess up, you haven't understood the tabernacle. You haven't understood the need for sacrifice. You will mess up. But the way to walk this life is to draw from him. And when we do that, we reflect in him. We can change the world. Good place to leave it. Kirsty has told us the, the Spirit of God dwells within each of us if we are his children. Do you know you're all on a journey? Good days, bad days. Good weeks, bad weeks. But you'll never change him. Let's say amen and okay.